Section 1. Book 1, Part 1 of The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book 1. January to March, A.D. 69. Part 1. I begin my work with the time when Servius Galba was consul for the second time with Titus Vinius for his colleague. Of the former period, the 820 years dating from the founding of the city, many authors have treated, and while they had to record the transactions of the Roman people, they wrote with equal eloquence and freedom. After the conflict at Actium, and when it became essential to peace that all power should be centred in one man, these great intellects passed away. Then, too, the truthfulness of history was impaired in many ways. At first, through men's ignorance of public affairs, which were now wholly strange to them. Then, through their passion for flattery, or, on the other hand, their hatred of their masters. And so, between the enmity of the one and the civility of the other, neither had any regard for posterity. But while we instinctively shrink from a writer's adulation, we lend a ready ear to detraction and spite, because flattery involves the shameful imputation of servility, whereas malignity wears the false appearance of honesty. I myself knew nothing of Galba, of Otho, or of Vitellius, either from benefits or from injuries. I would not deny that my elevation was begun by Vespasian, augmented by Titus, and still further advanced by Domitian. But those who profess inviolable truthfulness must speak of all without partiality and without hatred. I have reserved as an employment for my old age, should my life be long enough, a subject at once more fruitful and less anxious in the reign of the divine Nerva and the empire of Trajan, enjoying the rare happiness of times when we may think what we please and express what we think. I am entering on the history of a period rich in disasters, frightful in its wars, torn by civil strife, and even in peace, full of horrors. Four emperors perished by the sword. There were three civil wars. There were more with foreign enemies. There were often wars that had both characters at once. There was success in the East and disaster in the West. There were disturbances in Illyricum. Gaul wavered in its allegiance. Britain was thoroughly subdued and immediately abandoned. The tribes of the Suevi and the Samatai rose in concert against us. The Dacians had the glory of inflicting as well as suffering defeat. 
the armies of Parthia were all but set in motion by the cheat of a counterfeit Nero. Now, too, Italy was prostrated by disasters either entirely novel, or that recurred only after a long succession of ages. Cities in Campania's richest plains were swallowed up and overwhelmed. Rome was wasted by conflagrations, its oldest temples consumed, and the capital itself fired by the hands of citizens. Sacred rites were profaned. There was profligacy in the highest ranks. The sea was crowded with exiles, and its rocks polluted with bloody deeds. In the capital there were yet worse horrors. Nobility, wealth, the refusal or the acceptance of office were grounds for accusation, and virtue ensured destruction. The rewards of the informers were no less odious than their crimes, for while some seized on consulships and priestly offices as their share of the spoil, others on procuratorships and posts of more confidential authority, they robbed and ruined in every direction amid universal hatred and terror. Slaves were bribed to turn against their masters, and freedmen to betray their patrons, and those who had not an enemy were destroyed by friends. Yet the age was not so barren in noble qualities, as not also to exhibit examples of virtue. Mothers accompanied the flight of their sons, Wives followed their husbands into exile. There were brave kinsmen and faithful sons-in-law. There were slaves whose fidelity defied even torture. There were illustrious men driven to the last necessity and enduring it with fortitude. There were closing scenes that equaled the famous deaths of antiquity. Besides the manifold vicissitudes of human affairs, there were prodigies in heaven and earth, the warning voices of the thunder, and other intimations of the future, auspicious or gloomy, doubtful or not to be mistaken. Never surely did more terrible calamities of the Roman people, or evidence more conclusive, prove that the gods take no thought for our happiness, but only for our punishment. I think it proper, however, before I commence my purposed work, to pass under review the condition of the capital, the temper of the armies, the attitude of the provinces, and the elements of weakness and strength which existed throughout the whole empire, so that we may become acquainted, not only with the vicissitudes and the issues of events, which are often matters of chance, but also with their relations and their causes. Welcome as the death of Nero had been in the first burst of joy, yet it had not only roused various emotions in Rome, among the senators, the people, or the soldiery of the capital, it had also excited all the legions and their generals, for now had been divulged that secret of the empire, 
that emperors could be made elsewhere than at Rome. The senators enjoyed the first exercise of freedom with the less restraint, because the emperor was new to power and absent from the capital. The leading men of the equestrian order sympathized most closely with the joy of the senators. The respectable portion of the people, which was connected with the great families, as well as the dependents and freedmen of condemned and banished persons, were high in hope. The degraded populace, frequenters of the arena and the theatre, the most worthless of the slaves, and those who, having wasted their property, were supported by the infamous excesses of Nero, caught eagerly in their dejection at every rumour. The soldiery of the capital, who imbued with the spirit of an old allegiance to the Caesars, and who had been led to desert Nero by intrigues and influences from without, rather than by their own feelings, were inclined for change, when they found that the donative promised in Galba's name was withheld, and reflected that, for great services and great rewards, there was not the same room in peace as in war, and that the favour of an emperor created by the legions must be already preoccupied. They were further excited by the treason of Nymphidius Sabinus, their prefect, who himself aimed at the throne. Nymphidius indeed perished in the attempt, but, though the head of the mutiny was thus removed, there yet remained in many of the soldiers the consciousness of guilt. There were even men who talked, in angry terms, of the feebleness and avarice of Galba. The strictness, once so commended, and celebrated in the praises of the army, was galling to troops who rebelled against the old discipline, and who had been accustomed, by fourteen years' service under Nero, to love the vices of their emperors, as much as they had once respected their virtues. To all this was added Galba's own expression, I choose my soldiers, I do not buy them. Noble words for the commonwealth, but fraught with peril for himself. His other acts were not after this pattern. Titus Phineas and Cornelius Laco, one the most worthless, the other the most spiritless of mankind, were ruining the weak old emperor, who had to bear the odium of such crimes, and the scorn felt for such cowardice. Galba's progress had been slow and blood-stained. King Onius Varro, consul-elect, and Petronius Turpilianus, a man of consular rank, were put to death. The former as an accomplice of Nymphidius, the latter as one of Nero's generals. Both had perished without hearing or defence, like innocent men. His entry into the capital, made after the slaughter of thousands of unarmed soldiers, was most ill-omened, and was terrible even to the executioners. As he brought into the city his Spanish legion, while that which Nero had levied from the fleet still remained, 
Rome was full of strange troops. There were also many detachments from Germany, Britain, and Illyria, selected by Nero, and sent on by him to the Caspian passes, for service in the expedition which he was preparing against the Albani, but afterwards recalled to crush the insurrection of Vindex. Here there were vast materials for a revolution, without indeed a decided bias towards any one man, but ready to a daring hand. In this conjuncture, it happened that tidings of the death of Fontius Capito and Clodius Macca reached the capital. Macca was executed in Africa, where he was undoubtedly fermenting sedition, by Trebonius Garotianus, the procurator, who acted on Galba's authority. Capito fell in Germany while he was making similar attempts, by the hands of Cornelius Aquinas and Fabius Valens, legates of legions who did not wait for an order. There were, however, some who believed that Capito, though foully stained with avarice and profligacy, had yet abstained from all thought of revolution, that this was a treacherous accusation, invented by the commanders themselves, who had urged him to take up arms when they found themselves unable to prevail, and that Galba had approved of the deed, either from weakness of character or to avoid investigation into the circumstances of acts which could not be altered. Both executions, however, were unfavourably regarded. Indeed, when a ruler once becomes unpopular, all his acts, be they good or bad, tell against him. The freedmen, in their excessive power, were now putting up everything for sale. The slaves caught with greedy hands at immediate gain, and, reflecting on their master's age, hastened to be rich. The new court had the same abuses as the old, abuses as grievous as ever, but not so readily excused. Even the age of Galba caused ridicule and disgust among those whose associations were with the youth of Nero, and who were accustomed, as is the fashion of the vulgar, to value their emperors by the beauty and grace of their persons. Such, as far as one can speak of so vast a multitude, was the state of feeling at Rome. Among the provinces, Spain was under the government of Cluvius Rufus, an eloquent man, who had all the accomplishments of civil life, but who was without experience in war. Gaul, besides remembering Vindex, was bound to Galba by the recently conceded privileges of citizenship, and by the diminution of its future tribute. Those Gallic states, however, which were nearest to the armies of Germany, had not been treated with the same respect, and had even in some cases been deprived of their territory and these were reckoning the gains of others and their own losses with equal indignation. The armies of Germany were at once alarmed and angry, a most dangerous temper when allied with such strength, while elated by their recent victory, they feared 
because they might seem to have supported an unsuccessful party. They had been slow to revolt from Nero, and Virginius had not immediately declared for Galba. It was doubtful whether he had himself wished to be emperor, but all agreed that the empire had been offered to him by the soldiery. Again, the execution of Capito was a subject of indignation, even with those who could not complain of its injustice. They had no leader, for Virginius had been withdrawn on the pretext of his friendship with the emperor, that he was not sent back, and that he was even impeached, they regarded as an accusation against themselves. The army of Upper Germany despised their legate, Hortionius Flaccus, who, disabled by age and lameness, had no strength of character and no authority. Even when the soldiery were quiet, he could not control them. Much more in their fits of frenzy were they irritated by the very feebleness of his restraint. The legions of Lower Germany had long been without any general of consular rank, until, by the appointment of Galba, Aulus Vitellius took the command. He was son of that Vitellius who was censor and three times consul, this was thought sufficient recommendation. In the army of Britain, there was no angry feeling. Indeed, no troops behaved more blamelessly throughout all the troubles of these civil wars, either because they were far away and separated by the ocean from the rest of the empire, or because continual warfare had taught them to concentrate their hatred on the enemy. Illyricum, too, was quiet, though the legions drawn from that province by Nero had, while lingering in Italy, sent deputations to Virginius. But separated as these armies were by long distances, a thing of all others the most favourable for keeping troops to their duty, they could neither communicate their vices, nor combine their strength. In the east there was as yet no movement. Syria, and its four legions, were under the command of Licinius Mucianus, a man whose good and bad fortune were equally famous. In his youth he had cultivated with many intrigues the friendship of the great. His resources soon failed, and his position became precarious. And as he also suspected that Claudius had taken some offence, he withdrew into a retired part of Asia, and was as like an exile as he was afterwards like an emperor. He was a compound of dissipation and energy, of arrogance and courtesy, of good and bad qualities. His self-indulgence was excessive when he had leisure, yet whenever he had served, he had shown great qualities. In his public capacity, he might be praised. His private life was in bad repute. Yet over subjects, friends and colleagues, he exercised the influence of many fascinations. He was a man who would find it easier to transfer the imperial power to another than to hold it for himself. Flavius Vespasian, a general of Nero's appointment, was carrying on the war in Judea with three legions, and he had no wish or feeling adverse to Galba 
He had, in fact, sent his son Titus to acknowledge his authority, and to bespeak his favour, as in its proper place I shall relate. As for the hidden decrees of fate, the omens and the oracles that marked out Vespasian and his sons for imperial power, we believed in them only after his success. Ever since the time of the divine Augustus, Roman knights have ruled Egypt as kings, and the forces by which it has to be kept in subjection. It has been thought expedient thus to keep under home control a province so difficult of access, so productive of corn, ever distracted, excitable, and restless through the superstition and licentiousness of its inhabitants, knowing nothing of laws and unused to civil rule. Its governor was at this time Tiberius Alexander, a native of the country. Africa and its legions, now that Clodius Macco was dead, were disposed to be content with any emperor, after having experienced the rule of a smaller tyrant. The two divisions of Mauritania, Raetia, Noricum and Thrace, and the other provinces governed by procurators, as they were near this or that army, were driven by the presence of such powerful neighbours into friendship or hostility. The unarmed provinces with Italy at their head were exposed to any kind of slavery, and were ready to become the prize of victory. Such was the state of the Roman world, when Servius Galba, consul for the second time, with Titus Vinius for his colleague, entered upon a year which was to be the last of their lives, and which well-nigh brought the commonwealth to an end. A few days after the 1st of January, there arrived from Belgica dispatches of Pompeius Propinquus, the procurator, to this effect, that the legions of Upper Germany had broken through the obligation of their military oath, and were demanding another emperor but conceded the power of choice to the Senate and people of Rome, in the hope that a more lenient view might be taken of their revolt. These tidings hastened the plans of Galba, who had been long debating the subject of adoption with himself and with his intimate friends. There was indeed no more frequent subject of conversation during these months, at first because men had liberty and inclination to talk of such matters. Afterwards, because the feebleness of Galba was notorious. Few had any discrimination or patriotism. Many had foolish hopes for themselves, and spread interested reports, in which they named this or that person, to whom they might be related as friend or dependent. They were also moved by hatred of Titus Phineas, who grew daily more powerful and in the same proportion, more unpopular. The very easiness of Galba's temper stimulated the greedy cupidity which great advancement had excited in his friends, because with one so weak and so credulous, wrong might be done with less risk and greater gain. The real power of the empire was divided between Titus Phineas, the consul, and Cornelius Laco, 
prefect of the Praetorian Guard. Icelus, a freedman of Galba, was in equal favour. He had been presented with the rings of knighthood, and bore the equestrian name of Martianus. These men, being at variance, and in smaller matters pursuing their own aims, were divided in the affair of choosing a successor into two opposing factions. Titus Vinius was for Marcus Otho. Laco and Icelus agreed, not indeed in supporting any particular individual, but in striving for someone else. Galba indeed was aware of the friendship between Vinius and Otho, the gossip of those who allow nothing to pass in silence had named them as father-in-law and son-in-law, for Vinius had a widowed daughter, and Otho was unmarried. I believe that he had also at heart some care for the commonwealth. In vain, he would think, rescued from Nero, if it was to be left with Otho. For Otho's had been a neglected boyhood and a riotous youth, and he had made himself agreeable to Nero by emulating his profligacy. For this reason, the emperor had entrusted to him, as being the confidant of his amours, Popeia Sabina, the imperial favourite, until he could rid himself of his wife, Octavia. Soon suspecting him, with regard to this same Popeia, he sent him out of the way to the province of Lusitania, ostensibly to be its governor. Otho ruled the province with mildness, and, as he was the first to join Galba's party, was not without energy, and, while the war lasted, was the most conspicuous of the emperor's followers. He was led to cherish more and more passionately every day those hopes of adoption which he had entertained from the first. Many of the soldiers favoured him, and the court was biased in his favour, because he resembled Nero. When Galba heard of the mutiny in Germany, though nothing was as yet known about Vitellius, he felt anxious as to the direction which the violence of the legions might take, while he could not trust even the soldiery of the capital. He therefore resorted to what he supposed to be the only remedy, and held a council for the election of an emperor. To this he summoned, besides Phineas and Laco, Marius Celsus, consul-elect, and Ducanius Geminus, prefect of the city. Having first said a few words about his advanced years, he ordered Piso Licinianus to be summoned. It is uncertain whether he acted on his own free choice, or as believed by some, under the influence of Laco, who through rebellious Plautus had cultivated the friendship of Piso. But, cunningly enough, it was as a stranger that Laco supported him, and the high character of Piso gave weight to his advice. Piso, who was the son of Marcus Crassus and Scribonia, and thus of noble descent on both sides, was in look and manner a man of the old type. Rightly judged, he seemed a stern man, morose to those who estimated him less favourably. This point in his character pleased his adopted father, in proportion as it raised the anxious suspicions of others. We are told that Galba, 
taking hold of Piso's hand, spoke to this effect. If I were a private man, and were now adopting you by the act of the curiae, before the pontiffs, as our custom is, it would be a high honour to me to introduce into my family a descendant of Cnaeus Pompeius and Marcus Crassus. It would be a distinction to you to add to the nobility of your race the honours of the Sulpician and Lutatian houses. As it is, I, who have been called to the throne by the unanimous consent of gods and men, am moved by your splendid endowments, and by my own patriotism, to offer to you, a man of peace, that power for which our ancestors fought, and which I myself obtained by war. I am following the precedent of the divine Augustus, who placed on an eminence next to his own, first his nephew Marcellus, then his son-in-law Agrippa, afterwards his grandsons, and finally Tiberius Nero, his stepson. But Augustus looked for a successor in his own family. I look for one in the state. Not because I have no relatives or companions of my campaigns, but because it was not by any private favour that I myself received the imperial power. Let the principle of my choice be shown not only by my connections, which I have set aside for you, but by your own. You have a brother, noble as yourself, and older, who would be well worthy of this dignity, were you not worthier. Your age is such as to be now free from the passions of youth, and such your life, that in the past you have nothing to excuse. Hitherto you have only borne adversity. Prosperity tries the heart with keener temptations. For hardships may be endured, whereas we are spoiled by success. You indeed will cling with the same constancy to honour, freedom, friendship, the best possessions of the human spirit, but others will seek to weaken them with their civility. You will be fiercely assailed by adulation, by flattery, that worst poison of the true heart, and by the selfish interests of individuals. You and I speak together today with perfect frankness, but others will be more ready to address us as emperors than as men. For to urge his duty upon a prince is indeed a hard matter. To flatter him, whatever his character, is a mere routine gone through without any heart. Could the vast frame of this empire have stood and preserved its balance without a directing spirit, I was not unworthy of inaugurating a republic. As it is, we have been long reduced to a position, in which my age confer no greater boon on the Roman people than a good successor, your youth no greater than a good emperor. Under Tiberius, Caius, and Claudius, we were, so to speak, the inheritance of a single family. The choice which begins with us will be a substitute for freedom. Now that the family of the Julii and the Claudii has come to an end, adoption will discover the worthiest successor. To be begotten and born of a princely race is a mere accident. 
and is only valued as such. In adoption there is nothing that need bias the judgment, and if you wish to make a choice, an unanimous opinion points out the man. Let Nero be ever before your eyes, swollen with the pride of a long line of Caesars. It was not Vindex with his unarmed province, it was not myself with my single legion that shook his yoke from our necks. It was his own profligacy, his own brutality, and that, though there had been before no precedent of an emperor condemned by his own people, we who have been called to power by the issues of war and by the deliberate judgment of others shall incur unpopularity, however illustrious our character. Do not, however, be alarmed if, after a movement which has shaken the world, two legions are not yet quiet. I did not myself succeed to a throne without anxiety, and when men shall hear of your adoption, I shall no longer be thought old, and this is the only objection which is now made against me. Nero will always be regretted by the thoroughly depraved. It is for you and me to take care that he be not regretted also by the good. To prolong such advice suits not this occasion, and all my purpose is fulfilled if I have made a good choice in you. The most practical and the shortest method of distinguishing between good and bad measures is to think what you yourself would or would not like under another emperor. It is not here, as it is among nations despotically ruled, that there is a distinct governing family, while all the rest are slaves. You have to reign over men who cannot bear either absolute slavery or absolute freedom. This, with more to the same effect, was said by Galba. He spoke to Pisa as if he were creating an emperor. The others addressed him as if he were an emperor already. It is said of Piso that he betrayed no discomposure or excessive joy, either to the gaze to which he was immediately subjected, or afterwards when all eyes were turned upon him. His language to the emperor, his father, was reverential. His language about himself was modest. He showed no change in look or manner. He seemed like one who had the power rather than the wish to rule. It was next discussed whether the adoption should be publicly pronounced in front of the rostra, in the senate, or in the camp. It was thought best to go to the camp. This would be a compliment to the soldiery and their favour, base as it was to purchase it by bribery or intrigue, was not to be despised, if it could be obtained by honourable means. Meanwhile, the expectant people had surrounded the palace, impatient to learn the great secret, and those who sought to stifle the ill-concealed rumour did but spread it the more. The 10th of January was a gloomy, stormy day, unusually disturbed by thunder, lightning, and all bad omens from heaven. Though this had from ancient time been made a reason for dissolving an assembly, it did not deter Galba from proceeding to the camp. 
either because he despised such things as being mere matters of chance, or because the decrees of fate, though they be foreshown, are not escaped. Addressing a crowded assembly of the soldiers, he announced, with imperial brevity, that he adopted Piso, following the precedent of the divine Augustus, and the military custom by which a soldier chooses his comrade. Fearing that to conceal the mutiny would be to make them think it greater than it really was, he spontaneously declared that the 4th and 18th legions, led by a few factious persons, had been insubordinate, but had not gone beyond certain words and cries, and that they would soon return to their duty. To this speech he added no word of flattery, no hint of a bribe. Yet the tribunes, the centurions, and such of the soldiers as stood near, made an encouraging response. A gloomy silence prevailed among the rest, who seemed to think that they had lost by war that right to a donative which they had made good even in peace. It is certain that their feelings might have been conciliated by the very smallest liberality on the part of the parsimonious old man. He was ruined by his old-fashioned inflexibility and by an excessive sternness which we are no longer able to endure. End of Book One, Part One